Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. In the years leading up to 1997, the Labour Party had a problem. Everyone looked awful. Clothes were the wrong shape, the wrong colour, the women wore magenta, the men refused to wear suits, and so many people had facial hair. This was not a group that looked like they were ready for government. A woman called Barbara Follett decided something had to be done. Follett would go on to become an MP and later a Labour peer, but at the time she was merely an aspiring Labour candidate and the wife of an author and party donor. She began to invite Labour MPs to her house, a grand old place on a smart road in Chelsea. She would tell them how to dress and give them a season. That was their colour palette and they were not to deviate from it. MP after MP went through the same brutal process. It was even given a nickname. After Barbara was done with you, you'd been folleted. I think when it came to 1997, we all had been followed and we all looked exactly the same. This is veteran Labour MP Margaret Hodge. We all wore these little jackets with the shoulder pads in them, which were fashionable at the time. And I felt that was a little bit like the school uniform. But I think it helped to make us look more professional and more appropriate as leaders of our society. More than 25 years on, Barbara Follett is back on the scene, organising how-to-dress sessions for government hopefuls once again. Because some in the opposition party are beginning to look past the looming general election, daring to dream and thinking wistfully about what life could be like if they do manage to get their feet under some desks in Whitehall. So, for this week's episode, I've put together a handy how-to guide for politicians preparing for government. Because there are difficult conversations to be had with senior members of the civil service. The cabinet secretary has to act like a Bank of England governor. You have to use your eyebrows. It's like, hmm. <laughs> Just to give the impression that, really? This is going to be very hard. Conversations which don't always go well. There was just a complete, total lack of mutual respect, sympathy, understanding, interest. And which the serving ministers, still in charge, don't really want to be happening at all. And we bumped into a minister who said, I'm not even going to ask you why you're here, but I'm looking forward to seeing you back in the department very shortly. And yes... 
Even now, in 2023, there are still those all-important conversations about smartening up. There have been meetings about how senior members of the Shadow Cabinet look and how they need to make sure that they're presentable. From Politico, I'm Aggie Chambray, and this week on Westminster Insider, I'm going inside the secret talks between civil servants and politicians to find out how you really prepare for government and hearing all the things that can go wrong along the way. In case you hadn't noticed, there's an election coming. I've just had uh, from a senior government source tonight that the party's been told to be ready for an election from January the 1st. We don't know exactly when, but inside Westminster, it's affecting everything. Every announcement, speech, interview, everything is now seen through this prism. And Mr Speaker, I would normally bring in a measure like this from the start of the new tax year in April. But instead, tomorrow, I'm introducing urgent legislation to bring it in from January the 6th. On a back street in Westminster, inside the large, open-plan office space on Matthew Parker Street, which serves as Conservative campaign headquarters, the next general election is pretty much the sole focus of attention. But a mile or so east, across the river in Southwark, there are a handful of people inside Labour Party's HQ thinking about something else entirely. In their brightly lit, modern glass building, which more resembles a tech startup than a political office, there is a new unit. It consists of five or so people. They sit apart from the others. They are probably the only people in the building not thinking about the election. They're thinking about what comes after it. Mainly, it's about thinking through what are the key things they actually want to move on quickly when they're in government. This is Emma Norris, Deputy Director at the think tank, the Institute for Government. And partly they'll prepare that work for access talk so they're able to go in and give the civil service kind of some flavour of what their priorities are. OK, so... Access talks are the all-important private meetings between top civil servants and the opposition parties, and they take place ahead of any general election. So Keir Starmer and his most senior advisers will meet Downing Street officials to talk through what will happen if he wins the election. And shadow cabinet ministers will meet departmental permanent secretaries to talk through what their priorities will be. The idea is to allow any incoming government to hit the ground running. They started in the 1960s and they were really triggered by the Labour opposition at the time wanted to make some big changes to the state. And the deputy Labour leader at the time essentially wanted to talk these plans through with the civil service. So he reached out completely off his own back to the two Treasury permanent secretaries at the time to talk through the plans. And I think he kind of went for a walk in the park with one of them. And the Prime Minister at the time, Alec Douglas Holm, his private secretary heard about this and thought, gosh, hang on a minute, I need to run this by the Prime Minister and and, and check that he's okay and get his approval. So um, that's where they started in this informal, behind-the-scenes way and they've become more and more formalised into the process we have today. That process is kicked off when the leader of the opposition writes a letter to the Prime Minister to ask for them to start. And Keir Starmer has not done this yet. There is definitely talk within Labour about when to start access talks. This is my Politico colleague, Dan Bloom, who has also been looking at how opposition parties prepare for government in a new piece for our website. I've talked to people 
higher up in the Labour Party who recently suggest that this is not going to be a thing that kicks off before Christmas. So if access talks do, for example, start in January or February, if there's an election in May, then actually we'll be in this interesting situation where we've known that there's an election coming for a long time and the polls have been pointing to a change of government, but actually there are only three months of talks. Um, um, And presumably the longer the better. So why hasn't Keir Starmer written that letter yet? Well, what people have been saying to me is that their policies actually aren't ready yet. Uh, I was talking to one official who was saying uh, there hasn't been enough time to, as Keir Starmer called it, bomb-proof his policies. And what someone else said is, actually, even if time's short, we won't rush into these talks because we want them to be credible. This does not leave Labour a great deal of time. The last time Labour came to power, in 1997, they'd started access talks a full 16 months before the general election. The last time the Tories came to power, in 2010, they'd had 15 months of talks. At that time, the civil servant leading the access talks was the then Cabinet Secretary, Gus O'Donnell. Access talks are a bit shrouded in mystery, but basically the idea is... Every shadow person goes and talks to their perm sec about their key policies. And you are supposed to sit there and listen and go, thank you very much, and, 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 you know, go away and prepare. And do you remember your first meeting with David Cameron? Yes, yeah. We had this discussion about migration. I remember David Cameron saying to me, we are going to get net migration down in the tens of thousands. And at that point, the cabinet secretary has to act like a Bank of England governor. You have to use your eyebrows. It's like, hmm, (laughs) Just to give the impression that, really? This is going to be very hard. Uh, Do you realise how difficult that would be and how long it might take and what you might have to do to do it? History would suggest that, indeed, David Cameron had not quite thought this one through. So there's that little bit of interaction. There's a little bit of getting to know each other personally, which is is really important because it's not just the what in terms of policies, it's the how. How are you going to operate, you know? On the political side, David Laws former Liberal Democrat minister in the coalition government and a key lieutenant for leader Nick Clegg. He was also involved in transition talks in the run-up to the 2010 election. There was quite a high expectation that there could be a hung parliament. And I think it was seen as more credible that the Liberal Democrats should be having talks with the civil service about our programme of government. It's certainly not, you know, this is going to be your diary secretary and this is your office and what pictures do you want, uh, shadow minister or anything. It is very much around we, the civil service, want to understand what your key policy priorities are so that if you become part of the next government, we are ready to make a a rapid start in implementing your programme. It was actually a real eye-opener because the conversations were so different. This is Nick Bowles. He was a minister in David Cameron's government. As one of Cameron's closest allies back before the 2010 election, he did a lot of work to prepare the Tories for government, heading up their so-called implementation team. Bowles was present for most of the Conservatives' access talks. In some cases that were very, very business-like, so serious. And then there were others. My favourite of all was Ken Clark, who was shadow Lord Chancellor and then became Lord Chancellor. But basically, it was an extremely agreeable hour and a half 
of Ken reminiscing and telling stories about, you know, things that had gone hopelessly, terribly wrong in one or other of the, you know, departments in which he'd been, and the permanent secretary as totally mesmerised as I was by that. So people will handle it in a very different way. Um, There were others that were very, very intense with their suspicion and hostility. From from which which side? Well, both sides. Um, I do remember one conversation. I perhaps shouldn't. Oh, go on, um, tell me who uh, it was. <laughs> I don't know whether you, you have a dog, but when you take your dog for a walk in the local park, we've all seen it. You see that situation where two dogs have never met before, with no particular reason, bristle. Their hair stands up on end. There's a look of sort of hatred and aggression in each other's eyes. And I remember vividly exactly that happening when Chris Grayling as Shadow Home Secretary and David Normington as Permanent Secretary in the Home Office met for their first access talks. There was just a complete, total lack of mutual respect, sympathy, understanding, interest. Chris Grayling, who I think it's fair to say is, you know, relatively low on emotional intelligence scale, just started sort of breeding out his policies, which is an incredibly insulting thing to do because you're somehow assuming that the perm sex is not actually, you know, enough across their brief to understand what the opposition's policies are on the key questions. And David Normington, I'm sure he has many abilities, but he's sort of passive aggressive to the most extraordinary degree. He's one of those people who, you know, will take umbrage at, at anything and then instead of just sort of challenging and clearing the air, will just sort of snipe away and let drop rather sort of bitter little comments. Anyway, I remember sitting there thinking, on the one hand, this is a total disaster. On the other hand, it's completely electrifying and somewhat hilarious to see these two grown men behaving like a bull mastiff and my husky in the park. Fortunately, as it turned out, it wasn't Chris Grayling who became Home Secretary, it was Theresa May. But then actually, having said that, I think Theresa May had at least as bad a relationship with David Normington when she got into office. Bowles says the most important thing that comes out of Access Talks is this process of relationship building, assuming it actually goes well. They are going to have to work with each other. And just beginning to get a feel for the person of how they behave of what they respond well to of you know how to share information and I think that was really important I think it also helped perhaps identify some perm sex who were never going to work well with the particular person who was going to be the Secretary of State. And did that mean Um, that that those Secretary of States didn't go to those departments? It certainly wouldn't mean that, but it might mean that that there was a sort of marking of the card of the Permsec and, you know, the Permsec would perhaps not survive in post for more than a few months. And that's right and proper. Sometimes it's a meeting of minds, they get on immediately, you know, the simpatico. In other instances, you just don't gel. Emma Norris again with an example of not gelling from the run-up to the 1992 election, which Labour had been expected to win. 
There was a session planned in 1991 with Robin Butler, who was then the cabinet secretary with the shadow cabinet. And this was supposed to be you know, teaching them how uh, cabinet functions, what cabinet government is. Um, but I understand that this was slightly derailed by John Prescott, who'd been at the Spectator Awards the night before and had possibly imbibed a bit too much. But he wandered into to this meeting with the cabinet secretary and said something along the lines of, I know I'm pissed, but I've got one question. Why do I want some permanent secretary telling me things? I'll find out all about it when we're in government. And then was promptly escorted out of the room. Access talks are never held in government buildings. Those are reserved for government business. The opposition party chooses the location. Usually they're held in the House of Commons, which can lead to some slightly awkward interactions. Well, I do recall one occasion when uh, a group of us were walking through, I think, the central lobby. This is Una O'Brien, who was permanent secretary at the Department of Health between 2010 and 2016. And we bumped into a minister who said, um, I'm not even going to ask you why you're here, but I'm looking forward to seeing you back in the department very shortly. So we have to recognise that within the conventions... It's obviously permitted that these talks happen when the PM gives the go-ahead. But it, it must feel pretty awkward if you're a minister who's in government and you're, you've got trust in your officials, but you know that this thing is going on discreetly and in parallel. When they go well, access talks are useful for both the government and the civil service. But it was suggested to me they're perhaps more useful to the latter. The opposition is allowed to ask questions during access talks, but the civil servants are not allowed to give advice, unless you count raising your eyebrows. They have to keep all the information they garner secret from the government of the day, and they must do all of this sensitively without breaking the trust between ministers and their top officials. It's very, very clear that the responsibility of civil servants is to work for the government of the day. Una O'Brien again. I think ministers of whatever party would take a very dim view if they felt civil servants were diverting their attention to thinking about the policies of a completely different party. At the same time, the vast bulk of the work of the civil service is business as usual and isn't going to change a lot, if at all, if there is a change of political direction. And the second thing to say is that um, as you get closer to the obvious time of a general election, you cannot have a cliff edge. So the British state is a bit weird in a number of ways, and this is one of them. Other countries like the United States or Canada have a transition period so that transition conversations can take place after you know who's won the election, but before a new government comes in. But no, in Britain, sitting ministers pack their belongings before an election because they might not ever be let back into the department. The prime minister gets thrown out of their house within hours of losing an election and the new party has to be ready to go on day one. It's instantaneous. I've been there for the one hour where one, one person's gone off to the palace and the other one's coming back. And in that hour, you are changing everything. Gus O'Donnell again. You know, the furniture, the pictures, the way in which they want to operate, you know, it's, it is brutal, our system. I'm all for thinking about, could we make that a bit longer? Former Prime Ministers are usually very good about, you know, hanging on until it's very clear who they should suggest to the monarch. 
should be invited in as the next Prime Minister. So I think you could extend that period. Do you have an idea in your head of how long would be to have? I mean, a week, a month? I'd say a couple of weeks would be good. An ex-permanent secretary told me there's no time to think up new policies when you're in government. It's already too late for that, they said, because from day one, you will most likely be dealing with crisis after crisis. Think of David Cameron walking into an ongoing economic meltdown in 2010, Theresa May walking into a Brexit crisis in 2016, or the Queen dying two days after Liz Truss was appointed PM. My own view is that There's a bigger question here. Do we need a department of the opposition? Does the opposition have the sort of support that it needs, given the complexity of government? Una O'Brien again. I certainly think we need to look at what more can be done to support members of parliament to take that step from a focus on their constituency work, their parliamentary work, to taking responsibility for let's face it, enormous amounts of money and very complex problems. Coming up after the break, just how prepared for government, or otherwise, is the current Labour Party? There is an awareness within the party that there's not an enormous amount of institutional memory about what it's like within government. And how can they avoid looking complacent as they prepare? David Cameron was obsessed with that. Uh, He used to call it measuring the curtains. Stay with us. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A message from Lloyds Banking Group. Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Here's a good fact for you. Ministers never use the knocker on the door of 10 Downing Street. The famous black door just swings open when they're getting close. This magic happens because, well, there's a camera outside the door. And it's the job of a security guard staring at the screen inside to decide who the door should be opened for. I remember, it was rather bizarre, wondering whether the famous door would actually open when I arrived there, whether anyone would recognise me. And I was dreading sort of standing outside the door, knocking on the door knocker while people sort of looked out to think, who the hell is this? Former Lib Dem MP David Laws again, who 13 years ago walked up Downing Street to enter the government. 
But when I got close, the door did swing open. But when I got into the reception area of number 10 and the door slammed, I found to my shock that there was a newspaper article cut out very crudely from that day's Sun newspaper and sellotaped to the back door of Downing Street by the doorman. And under the headline, Britain's leading Lib Dums, were pictures of myself, Nick Clegg, Vince Cable and somebody else. And the doorman had been using it in order to identify us. Literally knowing how to get into government is something you learn pretty quickly as a new minister. But other skills take longer to develop. When I stood here first, uh, eight years ago, I was a lot younger but also a lot less experienced. Today, we, I, the government, has the experience and the knowledge, as well as the determination and commitment to deliver them. That was Tony Blair as he entered his third term of government in 2005. He has since said that it was only in his third term that he became an expert at being Prime Minister. He said that in 1997, after a long spell in opposition, he felt his party was woefully short on some of the things that were required, not just on operating the machinery of government, but on the complexity of policymaking, financial management and prioritisation. David Cameron, who, of course, never made it to a third term, wrote in his memoir that before being Prime Minister, he had thought a lot about how he would do it. In very Cameron-esque style, he said because of all his preparation, as well as feeling daunted by the prospect of being PM, he felt he was ready. You know, he had a fairly good grasp of most of the talents and abilities that you need. Ex-Tory Minister Nick Bowles again. But I think as a result, he underestimated how different it was what was going to be asked of his cabinet ministers. Because running a department is a very different thing than being prime minister. And I think he somehow assumed that, you know, because he was felt confident that he had all thought it all through, that they were. And, and the truth is it was no criticism of them as individuals. There'd been, most of them, had no preparation for the responsibilities that they're about to take on. Access talks are, of course, not the only way to prepare for government. Bowles was part of a so-called implementation team that was launched in 2007. They talked to members of the Shadow Cabinet about what their priorities were and how they were going to be delivered. What we would say to, to, to members of the Shadow Cabinet was, we're not going to help you win the next election but we will help you win the one after. I.e., if you don't succeed in implementing your plans in government, your chances of a second term become very, very small. As a starting point, Bowles' team would try to get different shadow departments to identify three to five things they wanted to implement in their first term. In a sense, the, the plans were necessary, but it was really a tool. It was really getting them ready because these are people who've spent the previous 5, 10, 15 years thinking about the political fight, barely ever thinking about what it takes to actually do anything because they were in opposition. And do you have any examples of anyone that could have been more successful if they'd been better prepared? <laughs> well, that's a little unfair. I'll give you an example, perhaps, of something that I think is now commonly accepted to have been a, a bit of a disaster, 
and consumed an enormous amount of energy of the government and indeed of public money. And that was the uh, reform of the NHS that was developed and launched and implemented by uh, Andrew Lansley as health secretary. Now, he, as shadow health secretary, had refused to have anything to do with our work at the implementation team. And ultimately, we couldn't force, you know, shadow cabinet members to do it. But, you know, ultimately, you can't force people to cooperate. And he really did very little with us. And indeed, he did very little talking to anybody else about his plans. And he, you know, had a lot of detail in his head. But as a result, when this bill came to Parliament... Most of the people in Number 10 were completely astonished. They had None of them had any idea that what he was proposing. And then the whole thing sort of just rolled on and you know, Bill went through Parliament. It took forever, I seem to remember. It got massively amended. And then, of course, it started being implemented. And the truth is the whole thing was a complete failure and a big mistake. Is he's wasted billions of pounds on a top-down reorganisation of the NHS that nobody wanted and nobody voted for. And it was a classic case of somebody thinking they know everything, not consulting widely, not getting in other points of view, actually then, you know, riding off a cliff. And, you know, the government survived that episode, but it was definitely very damaging for the government's credibility on NHS. Andrew Lansley told me he has no recollection of any of this, but his health plans were published in 2006 and detailed implementation, including draft legislation, was published before 2010. He also said his reforms achieved all the planned savings and by 2013, NHS waiting lists and times were at their lowest ever. Back to Nick Bowles. Was there a fear too of kind of jinxing the outcome of the result by appearing too well prepared? So David Cameron was obsessed with that. Uh, He used to call it measuring the curtains and he refused to allow anything that would appear uh, to the public that that measuring the curtains was going on, that there was a sort of taking the public for granted, that there was a a level of complacency. And I I think part of that was you know what you're saying is a is a sort of instinctive fear of jinxing uh, it i think there was a real political point which is that you know the public don't like to be taken for granted and that we that in opposition one needs to behave as if you know that you've got to earn every vote and you know you can't assume anything i think perhaps he went a bit too far of course You can do all the preparatory work you want, but if you don't win the election, it will all be a complete and utter waste of time. In 2015, Labour set up a similar team to Bowles' implementation one, inspired in part by the work he did. The Institute for Government described their work as the biggest opposition preparation ever to take place. The team wrote detailed plans for every department. They wrote a timeline for their first year in government and then another one for the whole five-year term. And then, Labour lost. And what we're saying is the Conservatives are the largest party. So I'm tendering my resignation, taking effect after this afternoon's commemoration of VE Day at the Cenotaph. Right now, the current team looking at transition in Labour HQ are thinking about what their first 10 days would look like. 
They are drawing up their first 100-day grid, and they're planning what would be in their first king's speech and first budget. And yes, they are thinking about what their most high-profile MPs look like and making sure they look the part. There is an expectation that you will look professional. This is Matt Lavender, who up until recently worked as a political advisor for shadow cabinet minister Lisa Nandy. But I think that sort of goes beyond just just dressing. I mean, I know that there have been, you know, meetings about how senior members of the shadow cabinet look and how they need to make sure that they're presentable. Though, though to be fair, I think most most of those members of the senior shadow cabinet are pretty were pretty okay as it as it was. Possibly better than they looked in the eighties and nineties before Barbara Follett got hold of them. I think there is something in having us look respectable and responsible uh, on television that does help convey the message with a seriousness that I think it deserves. So there's something in it. I think uh, Follett took it a little bit too far. Here's Margaret Hodge again on her experience of being told how to look. We spent the day thinking about what we looked at, the colours that suited us, the hair, the makeup, and we came out with a sort of set of instructions of what to go and buy. And then I went and spent 80 quid on makeup, and I'd never done that before. And in the mid-80s, that was a lot of money. I then went on television. In those days, I did quite a lot of telly. Didn't tell anybody that I bothered with what I looked like. Uh, and the only re- reaction I got from all my friends over the coming months was, saw you on telly, Margaret. What was the matter? You looked so old. So I binned. I binned the 80 quid's worth of uh, makeup and ch- went back to my natural hair colour. Fast forward to 2023. Shadow cabinet ministers and officials are also attending training sessions organised by the Institute for Government. We focus on making government more effective. Here's the Institute for Government's Emma Norris again. One of the things we do is is about this far out, um, kind of a year, year and a half away from a general election. We work uh, with opposition parties to help them prepare for government, um, to help them think about the white wall system, how departments work, what it means to be a minister. And as always, you know, we're doing that work with, with the opposition at the moment, as I think some of them have uh, already talked to you about. Emma Norris declined to give us any juicy details about these training sessions because of a confidentiality agreement with the opposition. Happily, Matt Lavender, who was still a Labour advisor when these sessions started, was able to spill the beans. There's been some some sessions set up for special advice or potential special advisors to give them an idea of what their role would be in government, how you would go from operating in a very small office, I mean, probably only two, three, maybe half a dozen in the bigger offices in opposition, to having all of this civil service infrastructure which you have to interact with and you are part of working alongside and probably in some cases sort of leading and directing on your boss's behalf. And that's a, you know, that's a big change and you're going to be doing it under uh, really high pressure circumstances with a lot of scrutiny on you. So I think it's just about making sure that you, you're giving people a bit of a bit of a warning, bit of training, and I think that's happening for the political advisors just to make sure that they're they're up to speed as as far as they can be in advance. W- what it would be like, you know, advisors have a big role to play in opposition and in government, and so you want to make sure that they're as prepared as they can be for what I'm sure will be a pretty whirlwind change if if Labour wins and those people find themselves in government departments. Labour has, of course, been out of power for 13 years. 
Everyone I spoke to has different reasons why this will be difficult for them if they get elected. The sheer pace will be unusual for them, how much the country has changed since the party was last in power, and, of course, all the chaos in the United Kingdom that will immediately become their problem. Now, the cost of living crisis is affecting people right across the country. Mortgage payments are rising for millions as people come off fixed deals. Rents are going up too. The NHS isn't just an a crisis. It's in a polycrisis. Since 2020, England's water firms pumped sewage into our rivers and seas for more than 7 million hours. I think that there is an awareness within the party that there's not an enormous amount of institutional memory about what it's like within government, you know, whether that's at the shadow cabinet level or, or the advisor level. And that's just because the party's been out of power for a long time. And so you've just got to make sure that these people who might find themselves in government in a year's time and, and probably in government in difficult circumstances, given the, you know, the state of the economy and, and the state of events happening around the world, you want to make sure that they are as aware as it's possible to be of what they're going to encounter. Although, Emma Norris points out, this shadow cabinet is actually more experienced than the one that entered government in 1997. I think sometimes the idea that you know shadow front benches will find it such an enormous shock is a bit overdone. Three of them have been secretaries of state before. They've run departments, so Beck Cooper, Ed Miliband, Hilary Benn. Um, more of them have been junior ministers in previous government. So they're quite experienced. And if you compare that to Blair in 97, only five of them had any ministerial experience then, and all of that was at a very junior level. Even with all that experience, Gus O'Donnell would like more to be done to prepare every MP for government. It's like if Sainsbury's were overtaken by another firm and they put someone in who'd had no retail or food selling experience, you'd think that's completely mad, you know. So we have people coming in who've got no ministerial experience whatsoever. That's the nature of our democracy, right? I'm not arguing with that. But that means that it would be great for them to have lots of training, particularly about decision making, about the way government works. But the current shadow cabinet does have one secret or perhaps not-so-secret weapon. Sue Gray, she is a senior civil servant. They used to call Sue Gray the most powerful civil servant you've never heard Sue of. Sue Gray has been appointed Chief of Staff to Keir Starmer. Now that appointment will be... I think massively important, massively helpful. She's trusted in the civil service. She knows the way the civil service operates. Gus O'Donnell again. She understands about what the role of politicians and, and the importance of all the ministers and particularly the shadow cabinet getting together and understanding their different roles and working together. In opposition, it's quite often that all the shadows do their own thing, as it were. And, and you need to realise in government that's, you know, that's not going to work. You need to be much more cohesive. So I think she'll, she'll be explaining that to them and explaining how to get on with your civil servants, you know, because when that combination works really well, the, the machine hums and fires. When it doesn't, as, as we've seen recently, unfortunately, you know, things don't work. And, and that's not good for the country. It's not good for the way we're governed. It's not good for the civil service. And it's not good for the governing party. And if you had a line to Keir Starmer, what would you be telling him to do right now? Um, I would say, yes, they, they absolutely need to work hard on policy. Um, you know, it's very easy in opposition to think it's all about winning the election and that means that you have people around you who are really good at polling, campaigning, choosing candidates for seats and all the rest of it. Yes, of course, that's important. But 
you know, if you want to be effective from day one, and, and believe me, there are big challenges. So if you're going to do bold stuff, you're going to do difficult stuff, you want to do it early, think about what that is. Get those policies right now so you can come in and you can give your civil servants uh, a good idea. So that's how to prepare for government. All those involved in preparing the Tories and Lib Dems for power in 2010 advise opposition parties to get as much planning done now as they can, to try not to plan to do too much in their first term, to look smart, to be polite to civil servants in Access Talks, because Access Talks are mostly there to build up relationships. And because if you're not, someone might pop up on a podcast 13 years later and spill the beans about your rude behaviour. And of course, brace yourself, because no matter how good your plans are, no matter how much time and thought you put into it, you might wake up on election morning and find out that those hours and hours of planning, those thousands of pages written, and those suffocating sessions spent in Chelsea thinking about your colour palettes, that they were all for nothing. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Aggie Chambray. If you've enjoyed it, please spread the word, follow us, and maybe leave us a nice review. My ex-handle is at Agnes Chambray. But before you go, Jack Blanchard is here. Hello, how are you doing? <laughs> yeah, good, how are you? Really good, I really enjoyed that. Thank you very much for that, Aggie. I feel like I am basically prepared for government myself now. Perfect, that, that was the aim. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> I'm not totally sold on Gus O'Donnell's idea of a sort of two-week hiatus before the new government comes in. And the best thing about elections is watching the Prime Minister get hauled out of his bed, dragged down the street and thrown out of his house at the end of it, isn't it? Yeah, for, for us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> not for exactly. the politicians. This is clearly a spectator sport. Um, Why don't you tell us what we've got coming up next week, Aggie? So, next week, so something kind of unusual happened this week, and that was a politician apologised wholeheartedly. Michael Gove said, I'm really sorry for the mistakes made by the government during the pandemic. And so I want to spend next week, my episode next week, looking at the art of the political apology, when politicians apologise and when they don't. Cool, there's been so many good ones, haven't there, down the years. I hope we're going to hear a bit about that Nick Clegg apology in 2014, 15, whenever it was. Yeah, well, you have to, you have to listen and wait. Have to wait <laughs> and see. Out. I wonder if saying sorry is a good idea. Um, maybe listeners could email you in, tweet you with their ideas for political apologies. Is that a good idea? Yeah, please, please do. All, all listeners, go for it. All right, there you go. So you've got Aggie next week on Political Apologies. And if you want to hear me in the meantime, I will be on Politics at Jack and Sam's every Sunday evening. You can listen to me talking about the week ahead in British politics. Okay, great. My producer this week was Artemis Irvine and James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions. Here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my editor is Jack Blanchard. Hello. There was additional reporting in this episode from Dan Bloom and I'll be back next week. See you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.